We are in our series in 1 Timothy. We're doing the first chapter together. So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on page 991 if you're using the Pew Bible, or I guess it's not the Pew Bible, but the church-provided Bible, page 991. And I'd invite all of you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 
By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You can be seated as we pray together. Father, I do ask that you would work in our midst through your word. And it's not just my prayer right now. There's people in the auditorium, in the overflow, people watching on live stream together. We are uniting our prayers and saying, God, speak. May it be your word, not mine. May it be your spirit's work, not mine. We open our hearts to what you have to say. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the most decisive battle in the American Civil War was the Battle of Gettysburg. It's the one that turned the tide. Confederates from the South were doing well, and the, the Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg, kind of changed that tide. And perhaps, perhaps one of the most important battles was an early battle within the I don't, know, I don't know all the right terms, but one of the smaller battles within the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, and it was when General Buford and his cavalry from the Union were the first to arrive on the high ground. They were small, and they were vastly outnumbered by the Confederates that were coming first with the cavalry and then wave after wave of infantry. And General Buford's commands were clear. You must remain there and defend the high ground at all costs. Lose that ground, the Confederates likely win, and they continue their journey northward. Hold that high ground, and we have a chance. The odds seemed insurmountable, but General Buford rallied his men, and they stood and remained and endured the enemy onslaught and were able, it's very complex how they did it, heirs of the Confederates, but they were able to hold the high ground, and as a result, the Union was able to win the high ground and ultimately win the battle. The charge to Timothy in our chapter that we're looking at is very similar to the charge that was given to General Buford. Remain. Remain and contend. Now before we look carefully at what, what's being said in that first chapter to Timothy, there is there's some words of introduction that I want to just tackle. So those first two verses kind of uh, give the formula. I just want to stop for a second. Is, is my mic working everywhere? Okay. Good. I sounded different to myself for a moment. So you have those first two verses, which are just kind of the standard way a letter begins um, in that time. It's how you would begin almost any letter with, this is who's writing it, this is who it's to, a little word of greeting. But Paul would always kind of tease little different truths in that. And so there's just three little observations I want to make before we get to the body of the letter. And, and the first 
is that Paul is already focused on a God who saves. He's already focused on a God who saves. So when he talks about the authority that he has because God's given it to him as an apostle, do you see how he says, by command of God our Savior? And that, that phrase will actually be repeated next, in the passage we look at next week in chapter 2. It's an important, important phrase because as we saw last week in the overview, this, over, overview, this, this book that talks a lot about how the church should be ordered is being written because what's first in Paul's heart is the God who saves. And the ordering of the church is important because of God's heart that all be saved. That's the first observation. The second observation is that it's written to Timothy, but I want to say it's a public letter to Timothy. So we see that he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. But if if you look at the very last line, the benediction of the book, it says, grace be with you. And if you look at the footnote, the, the you there is not singular. It's plural. So Paul is writing to Timothy, yes. But as God inspired Paul to write to Timothy, he actually wanted the whole church to hear what was being said to Timothy. And that's really important to keep in mind as we as a church move through and hear a lot of things addressing the leadership of the church. We want to hear, we we, we all need to hear that, and there's implications for all of us. That's the second observation. And the third, Paul's in a hurry to make his point. Paul's in a hurry to make his point. If you're familiar with how Paul typically starts his letters... There's an urgency. If, you, uh, if your dad calls you into the living room and he says, let me get right to the point. You know something serious, right? Normally you'd talk about this or that. And he's foregone all, foregone all that because he has something he wants to address. And it's serious. And, and that, that's... That's kind of the feel when you get right after it. Because Paul would typically, in his letters, after he does the kind of opening greeting, he would begin with a, a, a report of how he thanks God. He's, we have 13 of his letters in the New Testament. In 10 of them, there's this prayer of thanksgiving. And the only other two where he doesn't do that, Galatians and Titus, have much longer introductions. So this is the one of all his letters. So he's just, I got something to get to, and I'm getting to it. So we know... Whatever he's got to say, he's in a hurry to say it, and it's serious. It's important. So let's get after what this serious thing is. There's a charge he has. In verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. You're to stay there, Timothy. And why are you to stay there? You're supposed to remain and do what? so that you may charge certain persons not to say certain things they shouldn't be saying. In other words, there are voices that need to be silenced. There are voices in the church that need to be told. Don't do that. You might have noticed in we, as we read, verse 18 repeats the charge. There, I charge you, I've entrusted you to this gospel, happened at your ordination. He says, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So, Paul, inspired by God, is telling Timothy, remain and contend. 
So what, what is he supposed to contend for? What is he, what is he, what is it that he's supposed to silence? What is it that he's defending? That's really what Paul answers. He answers both those questions twice. So he begins in verses four or three and the beginning of four to say what he is defending against, or what he's contending against, what he's trying to silence. And then in the end of four and beginning of five, this is what you're defending. This is the good thing you're defending. And then he returns again in verses six through ten. This is what you're to silence. This is what you're to contend against. And then... Verses 11 to 17, this is what you're defending. So he's going to answer those questions for us. And that's what we're going to look at. So let's, let's look first at what are you contending against? Who are you supposed to silence? This is an important question. For somebody to use God-given spiritual authority... To silence certain voices in a church is very weighty. And it should not be done carelessly or wantonly. One cannot do that based on one's own opinion, based on one's own feelings. It must be based on what God has said and his authority and carrying that through, and only that. So it's very important as a church that we understand what is supposed to be contended against, what is supposed to be silenced. And in order to do that, there's three phrases here we need to understand. Different doctrine, myths, and endless genealogies. You see those words right there in verses 3 and 4. First phrase is different doctrines. Same phrase is used in chapter 6, verse 3, and it's explained there, saying basically it's anything that goes against what Jesus taught and the kind of life that would accompany what Jesus taught. I think you can take that down just one level and says what God has said is true and what God has, says about how, has said about how we should live. Anything that runs contrary to that is different doctrine. The next phrase is myths. And I think this can be a little bit of an unhelpful or misleading translation because when we hear myths, we think of like mythical creatures or Greek gods. But really, this word is kind of a catch-all, almost insulting term that Paul chooses for any sort of um, compelling spiritual story that isn't rooted in the truths of the scriptures. It's speculative. It's, It's somewhat subjective. It's not anchored in the truth of God's word. And these kind of stories take on all sorts of different forms through the years and centuries and in different times and places based on the culture of people. But they distract you away from the truths of God's word with kind of this compelling narrative that's been woven together by somebody that's rooted in spiritual realities. I think of just a couple decades ago, there was this onslaught of books that 
came to be known as the heaven tourism books of people telling stories of how they died and went to heaven and then came back to life and lived to tell about it. And, and people are like, oh, this is amazing. Now my faith is strengthened. Now I know heaven is like this. And oh, it's described like that. That must be what heaven's like. Now, are all those stories made up? I don't know, but some, some have recanted. But the point is, this is the very kind of malarkey that we need to be on guard against. It's one example. There, there are many. Mary appears on a window pane and people line up. A Bible supposedly produces an unending supply of oil and that oil has healing properties and people line up at the church to get some of the oil. A book comes out that promises that if you just use this code, the Bible actually predicts future events. And oh, by the way, if you, if you just know how to read the scriptures the right way, it tells you that President Obama is the Antichrist or that vaccines are the mark of the beast. You see, we're susceptible to these kind of things. And instead, we need to be people of the book. People who are rooted in the scriptures and not caught up in these vain speculations, these myths. Christians should not be gullible people. And there's that third term, endless genealogies. And I'll, and I'll say this word is a little bit harder to pin down. But by adding the word endless, you can, the endless genealogies, you can kind of see Paul's doing the same thing. It's kind of a catch-all phrase for this thing that he's not necessarily complimenting by saying that category for it. But what is it? I think it had to do with, with tracing pedigree. Maybe your own spiritual pedigree. This is, this is what gives me standing within the church. Because if you go here and here, and then it's related to here. But it also could be an author you liked, a certain, a certain spiritual literature that had genealogies in it. And they would debate those genealogies. And is this one accurate? And is this one? But at the end of the day, I think it had to do with spiritual, spiritual one-upsmanship. Kind of jockeying for position within the church to say, my voice should be heard and my voice needs to be heard because of my spiritual pedigree. Now, the important thing to see with these three phrases, three different kinds of voices that should be silenced, is where they lead. See in verse 3 where they lead? They promote speculations, Verse 6, wandered away into vain discussions. That's the key. The problem with these voices is they lead to speculative things and vain discussions instead of what really matters. In every church, there will be voices, whether conscious or unconscious, that raise speculative things and drive the church to be focused and preoccupied with things that ultimately are man-made speculations or vain discussions over these secondary issues. 
One commentator had this, I liked what he had to say. He said, open heresy is relatively rare, but subtle distractions are quite common. Now, I want to be careful in how I word this because in in a, a congregational church, sometimes we have to have discussions about things that aren't in the Bible. We have to decide, are we going to purchase this plot of land for future development or not? And in order to decide that together, you have to have, ask hard questions and have important conversation. We have to decide, how are our elders going to be structured? And it's okay to have conversations and hard conversations about how are our elders structured. In order for our church to function, we have to have some of those conversations. And those are good and right and proper. That's not what the scriptures are speaking about. But the scriptures are saying that there are people in churches who are just consistently driving the church to be preoccupied with speculative stuff that isn't primary. It's not, it's not God's doctrine. It's man's ideas and vain discussions and things that puff us up. Spiritual pedigree. My voice should be heard and it needs to be heard. And it's particularly damaging when those things descend into kind of jockeying for position and argumentativeness. And God's word is telling us that in an environment where that is allowed to prevail is a damaging environment for the church. And so Paul tells Timothy and those who would follow after him that his charge is to silence those voices for the good of the church. And he wants the whole church to hear that that's the charge to Timothy. So that is what you're to Contend against. That's what you're to to silence. But what is it you're trying to preserve? What is it you're defending? We see that at the end of verse 4 and verse 5, Paul's first answer to this question. And again, there's two concepts we need to understand to know what's, what's being defended here. The first is this phrase, the stewardship from God that is by faith. That word for stewardship is just the word economy. It's, it's kind of God's management plan, his, his wise structuring, organizing of the church. God has set things up in a certain way. And when we think about church, it's not our job to say, well, I think this is actually what's best and I want it to be done this way. It's actually, we just should be looking to God and saying, what do you want Let's look to your word, and that's what should be guiding us. That's important, though, because of verse 5. God structures his church in a, in a way for a reason. There's an aim to it, and that's what you see in verse 5. The aim is love. And watch how this, this gets traced out, because there's all sorts of like artificial, permed, fake love that is out there. That's not what he's after. He's after the kind of love that comes from a pure heart and a a good conscience. 
It's an inside out. I've been transformed in here, and so what flows out of me naturally is genuine, without guile, without an agenda, love. And that, that grows out of, you see at the end of verse 5, a sincere faith. In some sense, you can say faith, that's like, I believe. But it's also what we believe. The truths about the gospel and holding to that sincerely because here's what happens. God's gospel, what Jesus has done for, the cro- for us on the cross, when we believe it, it actually changes us. We're able to stand with a clear conscience in the light before God and say, here's who I am, a sinner. I repent of those things. I accept your forgiveness and I I seek the best I can to follow you. He makes us new. He forgives us. He gives us new hearts. He changes our very desires. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does to us. And that's the only thing that can change the inside and make us people who overflow into love. That's why the stewardship from God that is by faith is so important because it's the one that roots us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the the whole story of Scripture from beginning to end. And that gospel is what can change us and make us be people who genuinely love. That's what we must guard and defend. That's why anything that's leading us into speculations or vain discussions needs to be silenced because it takes us away from God's stewardship, which is what grows us in the way where we can be the kind of loving community God's designed us to be. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors told us a story about what, what the job of pastors and elders was. He said there was this village at the bottom of a mountain. And there was this beautiful mountain stream that came down through the center of the village with its pristine water and it allowed everyone in the village to thrive. And there was a really important role in that village. They would, they would find men who were uniquely capable and trained to, to go up into the top of the mountain and guard the stream. They were keepers of the stream, and their job was to make sure no pollutants got into the water. Nothing damaging would get into the water, but only that pure water would flow. And he says, as time went on, people got used to having the clean water, and they thought, well, that guy could be doing something else, or maybe those guys could go up in the mountains and do some other things that would be important for our village. And so they started distracting themselves from their central task, which was to keep the water pure. And eventually, over time, pollutants started to get into that water, and it was damaging for the health of everybody in the village. You see, that is the charge that Timothy and church leaders are given. We need men up there in the mountain keeping the water pure which means keeping certain things out of the water so that the life-giving water of the gospel can flow pure to our church without distraction, without pollutant, and produce love because of transformed hearts. So that's what's being defended. Paul then turns again to talk about what is being contended against in verses 6 through 10. 
these certain people have swerved from the pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith are addressed. And you can see by all the different kinds of ways you can get distracted from this, he's not saying this is the exhaustive list. There's many counterfeits, one real deal. Keep it pure, all the other stuff has to be brought out. But here he wants to address, in verses 6 through 10, misuses of the law. And there are two misuses of the law he wants to address. The first is to ignore it. So you kind of see that at the end of verse 10, after this list of all these things that the law addresses or outlaws, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. In other words, there is, there is behavior that God's word has said is out of bounds and it's out of bounds because it doesn't match with sound doctrine. It ultimately brings the gospel into ill repute. And there are churches today that in the name of tolerance or love actually promote or tolerate a sexual ethic that defies our creator. There are churches today that in the name of justice or freedom actually advocate for an anti-authority culture. There are churches today that in the name of contextualization wink at profanity and violence. And it's wrong. The Old and New Testaments are united in their voice that God has standards for his people. You see, the cancer survivor doesn't take cancer lightly. The sinner saved by Jesus does not take sin lightly. Those are the very things that I was redeemed from. So the first error in using the law is to ignore it. But there's a second error. And this one I think is even more in Paul's crosshairs here. And that's to use the law to puff ourselves up. So I look through the list of commands that are in the Bible and maybe a few that we've added on. I think, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not one of those. <laughs> check, check, check. Aren't I so good? It's exactly what Paul was like before the gospel found him. He could look at the checklist of the law and say, I am at the top. I have climbed the spiritual ladder. Aren't I a spiritual giant? And the law was being used to puff him up, make distinctions of, well, you guys are the kind of Jews. We're the real ones. You're the kind. Yeah, we'll, we'll count you as Christians, but you're not quite at our level. We can look down our nose at all sorts of people. Think how great we are. The law is often used that way. But that's not what it was intended for. 
That's not using the law lawfully. It wasn't written for, for the people who think of themselves as just to kind of prop themselves up and say, look how good I am. It was written for sinners. Certainly it showed just how pervasive our sin was. It exposed how far it reached into every corner of our life because in our own judgment, our own, ourselves as judge, we just don't see how far we've fallen and how much we rebel against our Creator. So it exposes that. But even as it exposes that, it dropped all sorts of hints that there was a way of salvation. There could be a sacrifice for your sins. There can be a priest who mediates between you and God. There can be a temple where a holy God comes and dwells with a sinful people. There can be atoning sacrifices. Blood can deal with this. There's a Savior coming and he's going to come and rescue. They're telling all sorts of clues that when Jesus comes along, that law has driven us right to him so that we fall at his feet and say, a sinner like me can be saved. If you are hearing this this morning and you are someone who is a liar and you know it, you're sexually immoral, you're living that way right now and you know it, you're homosexual, like, okay, I'm in a church, I show up to church or I listen to the sermon online and there it is, see, they're always banging on that issue. You're defiant against your parental authority or other authority in your life. Profane. God is telling you this morning that his law is for you. Not in a way to, see, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. That's all of us. The law does do that a little bit. It's actually here to tell you there's a Savior for you. It's like there's a Savior for me, a wretched sinner. And that's exactly where Paul goes, right? In verses 11 to 17, it's exactly where he wants to land. Where did this law supposed to lead? Look what it says. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. So here, here's the apostle saying, here's my list of what I've done. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So why did, why did God want this guy to be his apostle? But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, I was thinking I was doing great didn't really realize what a sinner I was. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I love that, overflowed. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then with a big, sharpie uh, highlighter. The saying is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save the righteous, the just, the good ones. The people have done such a good job of showing God how much they love him. No. To save sinners. Of whom I was the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe on him for eternal life. 
So if you are in those categories this morning, God is saying to you, this gospel is for you. This is why I wrote the scriptures, so that sinners can be saved. That's even why I chose the Apostle Paul. You're starting to see, what are we contending against? Wrong uses of the law. Teachers who say, nah, the law doesn't really matter. Live how you want, need to be silenced. Teachers who say, let's use the law to puff ourselves up, need to be silenced. But why? It's to keep the stream pure. This gospel is at the... Whether it's the law in the Old Testament or all the way through to the law's fulfillment in the New Testament, it's all pointing us to what Jesus has done for us and that's what must be preserved. I've moved into the the fourth answer, right, of, of what are we defending? We're defending this glorious gospel. It makes you overflow to the king of ages, your heart overflow to the king of ages, immortal Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the charge. And you hear that great doxology and you hear the amen, you're like, okay, Paul, time to move on to your next section. But he's like, nope, I'm going to give that charge one more time to Timothy. Now that we've celebrated the gospel that we're preserving together, he's got to know, I entrusted this to you. God entrusted me. I entrust you at your ordination. When there's the prophetic laying on of hands over you and you are commissioned to this, you are commissioned to wage the good warfare with a clean conscience and with a sincere faith. And the stakes are high because you swerve from this. The faith goes crashing against the rocks of all this vain discussion and insincerity. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're they're examples of that. Stakes are high, Timothy. Contend. I said at the the beginning that the charge to Timothy was similar to the charge to General Buford. The charge to Timothy is actually far more important, as important as General Buford's was. General Buford had massive implications for the future of our world. The charge to Timothy has massive implications for the world to come. And so, we need to hear what Timothy is being charged with by God. And we as a church need to hear Timothy and those who would follow after him as leaders of the church are charged with. Because at the end of the day, what we're preserving is the table we have before us, a table where we see what Christ has done for us. The stakes are high. The charge is clear. The church has heard it. Let's live out or live in obedience to it. Would you pray with me? Father, I want what this chapter says to ring in our ears, and I don't want anything I've said that isn't just what you're saying, 
to linger in any way. Because the health of your church depends on us being obedient to it. So give us strength, God, to live as people of the book, people who make our delight and our conversation and our priorities as a church all around the glorious gospel, the stewardship from God that is by faith. We know your heart, your God, our Savior. We want all to be saved. So make us more and more a church like that and give us wisdom to obey these passages or this passage. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.